evening, I, Lord Simmons, would like to invite you all to a little knees-up. We just sit here, do we? Wait for our number. No. We try and make the best of it. Oh, stuff your bloody best of it! The tart with the art of gold only belongs in Hollywood movies. Hello, Martin here again for the final time today. This is the last part of our Tenko day, but we're finishing in style with the one and only Louise Jameson. Andy interviewed Louise earlier this week about her memories of playing Blanche Simmons in the first two series of Tenko. Blanche was the forthright Cockney who worked as a hostess in Singapore before the invasion, and whose irreverence and coarse humour upset some of her fellow prisoners at first. Over time, she developed an unlikely friendship with upper-class robes, which was tested when she informed on Blanche after she made a bid for freedom. When Blanche was separated from her comrades for a time, Marion's petitioning of Yamauchi led to her surprise reunion with her former campmates. Blanche was quickly up to her neck in trouble again and became involved in another adventure beyond the wire. Louise, who trained at RADA and spent two years at the Royal Shakespeare Company, is best known for playing Leela opposite Tom Baker in Doctor Who. Other major television roles have included Dr Anne Reynolds in The Omega Factor, Susan Young in Bergerac and Rosa DiMarco in EastEnders. More recent television roles have included Eleanor Glasson in Doc Martin, Mary Simpson in The Tractate Midoth, Wendy Nook in Toast of London and Granny Bob in The Secret Life of Boys. Louise's first love is the stage, and recent credits have included Vincent River, The Madness of George III, Ten Times Table, Winter Hill, and Miss Marple in A Murder is Announced. Louise also directs, recently the thriller play Revenge, which had a UK tour, and writes, notably Survivors, and the Atta Girl series, both the big finish. So I'm completely thrilled to be joined by Louise Jameson now, who played Blanche in Tenko. Morning, Louise. Morning. Absolutely lovely to be here. Well, thank you. I'm going to dive straight in with the questions. Is it right that you were initially up for the part of Rose rather than Blanche? I don't know whether I should say this because of, uh, Steph knows somebody was offered it before her. but she's, <laughs> <laughs> It's in the book. Now. It's in the book and um, she's got the book. <laughs> oh, OK. <laughs> um, I was... I was offered it. It wasn't just up for it. I was offered it right. by Pennant. And he said, just as a matter of, um, what? Just as a matter of respect, you need to meet Ken mm. Riddington. Um, and I'm sure he'll okay it. And I went in to meet Ken. And Ken apparently said she's much too much of a tart. I think she should be playing Blanche. So they, I was in the extraordinary position. I got called in again and they locked me in a room with... Uh, eight episodes and I read them all and they uh, asked me to choose which part wow. I preferred and although Rose had two more episodes than Blanche and Rose also got a trip to Singapore which Blanche didn't at that point you know uh, I Blanche just that rare occasion where a part just brings off the page you know if i believed in in reincarnation i'd say i'd lived that life wow. it yeah. was so it hit me so hard very very rarely does a part do that maybe four or five in my career 50 years of career <laughs> 
can't believe it's 50 years yeah. next year. Yeah. Anyway, um, so I said I would like to play Blanche, please. And because of that, I went off to Bromley. I had an extra eight weeks to film and I went off to Bromley to do a play called Whose Life Is It Anyway? Uh, where I met the father of my first child. So if I had accepted Rose... Harry wouldn't exist, nor would my grandson Otis, nor would my granddaughter, who's due wow. today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So it's extraordinary the whole butterfly effect. Yeah, isn't it? Life choices, sliding doors totally. moments. Couldn't get yes. more sliding doors than that. So I have Blanche to yeah, thank. Yeah. I have Blanche to thank for my, for my firstborn. Oh, guess what's on the menu? I can guess what isn't. Bacon and eggs, Ooh. toast and dripping. Oh, Ooh, and a nice cup of char. Wrong on the last cab. <laughs> so you mentioned Pennant there, who um, offered you the part. Um, can you share your memories of Pennant, who you'd also worked with on Doctor Who as well? I might cry. That's OK. <laughs> Pennant was such... So I'm sorry, this is my dog you can hear bashing about in the background here. Um, my Pennant was one of my dearest friends, and Betsam, his widow, remains one of my dearest friends. He gave me both Leela in Doctor Who and Blanche in Tenko. So I, you know, professionally I have so much to be grateful for, but also uh, emotionally. I had quite a rough time in my um in my early 30s and he was there every step of the way there was my my mother died on valentine's day and i was performing in a play at the time called gaslight and when i went out the stage door that night there was pennant and his wife they just they just got in their car and come to scoop me up i mean they were those they are well bet still yeah. is but pennant was that kind of friend and he he was brilliant at creating a work, working atmosphere. It's, it's, a, it's, it's an almost intangible talent, but he got the right mix of people in everything that he directed. There was loads of laughter. You never felt the pressure of time, even though it was there. He, he said 85% of the work is in the casting. And if you've cast it right and the writing's good, you have to do very, very little other than create a good working atmosphere, which he managed brilliantly. Even when there were differences, there was somehow, there was never confrontation, there was only ever debate. And he completely honoured and accepted and listened to the actors there, which a lot of directors don't. They're preoccupied rather brilliantly with the picture and the lighting and the and the music that's added afterwards and so on and so on and so on. But Pennant, Pennant put writing at the heart of his work and then the actor's lair came on top of that. Um, and it was all about actor's confidence. And he, I, I can't sing his praises highly enough, really. Mm, mm, great man. I was lucky enough to meet him as well. And yeah, it's wonderful. He's like a, he was like a great big cuddly Welsh bear. I mean, he he always he always oh there she goes. I'm sorry. Apologies. The joys of live recording. Shush! Come here! Come here! Come here! Come here! Oi! Come here! Come here! Good girl. Um, he always cast people he knew, uh, 
and he always took a punt. So within all his casts, there would be one new person. Didn't always pay off, but normally it did. But he always had a few people who knew each other, which I think was the sort of basis. Yeah, yeah. So, Tenko more broadly, did the fact that it would tell a forgotten story of the war appeal to you? Oh, completely. Yeah, absolutely. And I've um, since followed it through with a big Finnish audio called Attica, ATA standing for Air Transport Auxiliary, about the unsung heroines. So started with a core of eight and ended up with, I think, 110 by the end of the war, women flying planes and under very dangerous circumstances. So that whole era has always been very appealing to me. My mother, my mother would come alight when she talked about the war she and two others looked after 600 servicemen she was in what was then called domestic science and fed them fed 600 men every day she had the most brilliant war she had eight proposals of marriage she was asked out on a regular basis you know every single day somebody would ask her out and she said the big thing was oh uh, the big line was well I might die tomorrow you know the the chat up line was I might die tomorrow and actually, that was true. Yeah, that was a that was a true line. But that was how the men tried to get the women. I think into I think Anne Valerie told days. me she used that line a lot as well. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Anne. Yes. So. So yeah. yes, that 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 era, and the fact that you're. Um, I think my first experience of it was playing a character called Miriam Gottchalk, in a in a. A theatre piece uh, called Mephisto and she was a Jewess who was married to a non-Jew and rather than s- separate this is in Nazi Germany rather than uh, separate from each other they and their two-year-old uh, jumped off a bridge they took themselves out of the world and I and I played her in a in a play and we actually cut the scene just as they stood on the edge of the bridge they then we cut the scene and left the audience to imagine what happened next, just the noise of the train coming through. And that's the first time I'd felt the added responsibility of playing somebody who had actually existed. You've absolutely got to get it right and play with the most uh, respect you can find. It's not about you and your ego. and your, It's about honouring those, those women. You know that guard you're always chatting up? Look, I'm not criticising or nothing, can't really. But I know he fancies you. I can't get anywhere near him. And uh, he was the one that went down with malaria, so I was thinking. Well, maybe he's got some quinine left, and Judith's in a pretty bad place. No. She's dying, Dot. Dying. Look, poor Debbie. I mean, Judith's all she's got left in the world. Excuse me. Did you hear what I said? Judith's gonna bloody cop it. Lucky her. Look! Over there is a corpse! A malaria corpse, a non-medicine corpse. Over there is violet. Nothing else. So Blanche in particular represented those women who didn't survive the camps uh, to tell a tale. And there were no internment accounts written by those type of people in the camps, either because they couldn't write or read or because they were just not the sort of people who would get the opportunity to record that situation and of course in Blanche's case she didn't make it um did the fact that this substrata of the people in the camps were even more hidden make Blanche more appealing 
never thought of it in those terms. I think if you hot-seated me as Blanche and said, why didn't you keep a record? She'd say, what's the point? You know, who wants to know about me? Who's who's going to read my story? Who's going to be remotely interested in what I have to say? She was, she was a highly... I mean, I regarded Blanche as being highly intelligent, um, just uneducated. Yes. Um, but in her, her street life, her survival kit was actually much stronger than a lot of the other women. You know, in real life, I got pregnant, so they had to write me out with Beriberi, which is absolutely broke my heart. Of course. We were literally negotiating the third series when um, when I had to tell them I was pregnant. Yeah. Um, you can't. You can't swap a life for a, no. for a TV series, no. you know. No, no, of course no. not. So that wasn't... Um, but you'd put so much heart and soul into it by then. that Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And so identified with her. Yeah. Um, but I... Th- uh, so she didn't survive the camp, but I actually think the long-term original plan was that the likes of Blanche actually did survive yes. the camp. Yeah. Um, and she, she had this odd relationship this, the I thought the I thought Anne and Jill really investigated the class structure brilliantly within that within the camp. I mean, basically, you know, is you, you turn to Shakespeare's man no more than this. You know, once you're down to your loincloth, what 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 is there left except survival? And to survive, you you need each other. So really unusual friendships were formed, and it was fantastic to investigate that. And I thought the Rose Blanche friendship yeah. was particularly moving and profound. It's not just death I'm scared of, neither. So you survive, so what then? Who wants to get out of here white-haired and toothless? I already lost one. There is always the hope that the Allies will show up. (laughs) You used to be the voice of realism, always quoting your journalist chum. You used to be the voice of light relief. Yeah, well, I ran out of jokes. Will you come with me, Rose? Oh, no. I could do with the company. (laughs) And you're the nearest thing I've got to a friend. Please. We could do it together. I'll bet we could. A week ago, I might have said yes. Well, what happened? I don't recall no handouts. We heard there was a men's camp. And if Bernard is around somewhere, I might as well hang on. I thought you didn't love him. So did I. You won't say nothing. Hmm. Promise? I promise. Yeah, I was just about to say, I mean, that connection, of course, would never have happened outside the camp, so to explore that was... Far from it. No, I mean, Blanche would have, I don't know, filched the diamond earrings. (laughs) (laughs) That's all she'd be interested in Rose for, really, what she could get out of her. Yeah, yeah. So... Did you have any reservations about Tenko because it was an all-women cast? (laughs) (laughs) I did think, think, to my shame, I did think, ooh, two years, all women, is this going to be all right? But it was the most liberating and fantastic and supportive and uh, profound. 
experience too. And I still, um, as you know, meet up with them uh, very regularly. Births, marriages, deaths, christenings, first nights. We're, we've been there for each other. I mean, it's turned into a almost biannual, I suppose. Uh, we have we have lunch somewhere in London. About six, seven, eight of us get together. And it's uh, it means the world. It means the absolute world. Were you actually informed ahead of filming that you would have to lose weight? I was quite skinny at the time. Yeah, I thought you must have. <laughs> so what, what I did have to sign was a guarantee not to put on any wow, weight. Wow, really? Because I got, then I got pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then Stephanie Beecham said to me, the things you'll do for a close-up. Because <laughs> they could only, at one point, they could only shoot me from the neck up. Um uh, so, yes, we had to sign a, a thing saying we wouldn't put on any weight. And we were weighed in every morning at the rehearsal rooms. And our weight was put up on a, written up on a chart on the wall. Yeah, wouldn't be allowed now. No, I don't think so. No. I think we probably, they could probably still get away with don't put on any weight. Uh, but they were, they were very good to us in as much as they ordered these special meals we got lovely salads delivered every lunchtime so we could eat well but eat very healthily when you're on location in dorset and it was standing in for sumatra how was it to trans to transport yourself to the far east was that easy or tough oh it was blimmin cold (laughs) <laughs> they get, they had these loud hailers every time we had an outdoor scene with all of us. They'd go, "Remember, it's hot. Remember, it's sweltering." And we'd be literally, our teeth would be chattering. You know, they sprayed us with um, a mixture of water and baby lotion, so it looked like sweat the whole time. So there was that happening as well. And I think the worst scene was the end of series one. And they the fire, so they got the local firemen to come with hose pipes to, to, to spray. So it looked like it was absolutely torrential rainfall. But because we were in the middle of nowhere, there wasn't much water for them to tap into. So we had the pond pond water coming through the hose pipes and freezing and then all yelling remember it's hot which is can we just get this scene over wow. and done with yeah and the person who never ever complained you know gene anderson when we were we were all standing in those endless tenko mm. lines and um yeah because it could take a long time to light and set up those scenes and yeah. The only person who never complained, Jean Anderson, wow. who's I don't know what age she was then, you know. Yeah, 70s, I think. Yes. Kind of where I am now. And she and all the rest of us, oh, can we have a chair while we can someone please bring a glass of water? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she would just stand there straight back. Wow. Stood there waiting. Yeah, 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 yeah. wonderful. What the hell's got into them all? Oh, something a nips put in the rice. Big B used to be a right old bat lack. She look at her now. There's no chicken. You're no flaming chicken. But at least you've got some spunk. Ooh. Some call it spunk, others bloody-mindedness. Flaming hell, we're supposed to be at war with the bloody nips. So a specific storyline, which is, I'm going to say it's glorious, which is Blanche's escape and then she's staked out afterwards because Marion and Rose go to Yamauchi because they're worried about Debbie. All of that big storyline, how was that to do? It was very 
uh, exciting to do, really. Lots of night shoots. Um, lots of, you know, there's, there's a particular scene I remember in a, when I'm in the, it's a very short scene, where I'm in the hot hole. The punishment hut, yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And it, and uh, this was Penn. He said, I'm going to start, I'm going to start very wide and I'm just going to time it so that we come right in on the end. I think, I think we did it in two takes. He, he didn't do it much. We went, yeah, 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 got it. And it was so beautifully written and and said so much with so little. You know, one tiny little camera move. I just had to sit there and feel what that might be like, that sense of isolation and that physical pain and just feeling like it's the end of the world. Bucky, yeah. <laughs> Thought I was so was you know for your actors muscles it was brilliantly gritty gorgeous story to get into you know spitting in rose's face and that you know beautiful friendship shattered for a while and and the dilemma that 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 it put Anne yeah and bells marion yeah. into does she tell does yeah. she what is it she's risking blanche's life by breaking this confidence and it's such a complicated uh, emotional journey for everybody. It's beautiful, yeah, beautiful. It really is. Yeah. So in our review episode, we chose an episode from each series to explore, and that was the one we chose from the first series because we felt it had uh, just so much in it that was yeah just gutsy and real. Yeah. Yeah, it's the truth. I think you all reach in that one. And also at that time, you know, nineteen eighty-one. We were filming it. At that time, as a woman, you were usually somebody's girlfriend, somebody's mother, somebody's aunt, somebody's grand, somebody's servant. I mean, it's always you were always there because you were attached to somebody else. You know, even in the wonderful break of Doctor Who, mm. I was somebody's assistant, yeah. uh, you know, or companion. Yeah. Um, so, so for us to be these extraordinary, ordinary women. That ox, the oxymoron of that, the contradiction of that, was joyous to see these women at their best and at their worst, for everybody to be able to identify with and not just serving somebody else's story. Yeah, yeah and the fact that you weren't there just talking about men, crucially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> well, don't look so pleased to see me. I heard it was someone from the old camp. Well, how are you? I felt a lot better before your junior partner got her mitts on me. What a little peach, eh? Dr Trier obviously hasn't explained. She's the senior doctor here. Over you? Yes. I only work part-time in the hospital. You play second fiddle to that glass-eyed frog? Dr Trier is extremely well qualified. Stone the crows. Naturally, as she was in charge here There's already. There's nothing natural about her. Yes, well, there it is. Well, how are the others? Ellie, Sylvia, the rest? Oh, Sylvia copped it. 
First month there, cholera. Quite a few of them went then. Jean Balfour, Mrs Lang, Madge. Hello. Oh, she come through. Yeah, been doing you proud. <laughs> Run in the sick bay in true Mason style. So you have Harry, which rules you out of coming into the start of the second series, as was originally planned. So you come back halfway through. How was it to come back to Dorset again with your newborn baby? Um, I had a I had a few childcare problems. A couple of slightly disastrous nannies. <laughs> help me, which I won't go into. But so Harry often came on set with me and it wasn't a question of could you hold my baby for a moment it was could I have him back now please it was one of the joys of it at being all women there was one particular shot a night shot where I think um I'd got Rose out to go and meet her lover and we were we were going under the fence and um we we dug a hole under this wire fence and were curling up underneath it so my body was bent in a bow and they were having particular problem lighting that scene and I had literally had a cesarean six weeks before that shot and I I was there for about I don't know 20 minutes and then I I just called out you know I did have a cesarean six weeks ago and that it was done in five yeah, minutes suddenly. everybody just jumped to <laughs> suddenly remembered that I just had Actually. a baby and probably wasn't the best position for my body at yeah. that particular no, time wow so an Im- an immense kind of supportive couldn't couldn't have been a couldn't have been a more supportive cast and crew yeah. with under the circumstances right. you know yeah um one of my favorite scenes I think that Blanche has in the whole thing is in the, the her episode when she comes back and she meets Verna for the first time, who was running the second camp, and she's she's a bad bad lady. And you have a lovely comic performance when you're meeting her for the first time. You pretend to be a bit how you know, but how do you do? A bit posh, and you're like, "Who the hell was that?" And it's it's perfect, Blanche Cockney sort of um, oh, just like not believing her situation. How was it to play the comedy and the the comic timing of of Blanche and the the, the sort of the yeah, all of that. I've always loved uh, uh, comedy roles. I've had far more of them on stage than I have on on camera. Um, so it was lovely to have that that opportunity. But you know, my my mum was born when Bow Bells were ringing. She was a true blue Cockney, right. and my granddad made good, and we moved out to Epping, Essex, and I got sent to private school. So I I did have. Uh, growing up a foot in both camps you know Uncle Fred from the old Kent Road came to live with us so we had that broad cockney rhyming slang along with me being sent to elocution class as a young girl because my mum didn't want me to talk like that you know what I mean (laughs) so and every time I went yeah she went there's an S on the end of yeah (laughs) she was very determined I would jump class as it were so uh, so I have a very I hope very good understanding of of um, both worlds and how there isn't really that much difference at all. And you know, if somebody's talking really posh, they don't move their mouth at all. If someone's talking really cockney, they don't move their mouth ah. at all either. It's, it's all to do with it's all to do with um, laziness, really, yeah. and a sort of slight arrogance. I mean, there's other forms of cockney which are very energetic, <laughs> but it, but it, but 
Blanche, I think, was just what you saw is what you yeah. got. I'm quite envious of Blanche, really, because yeah. I've spent a lot of my life wanting to be one, a people pleaser, you know, wanting to please. I think a lot of actors are like that. Um, and it's, it's taken a long, long time to, to stop caring mm. quite so much about what people... And Blanche was kind of born with that, what you see is what you get, and I'll survive, and, you know, sod the rest of you. You must be on your arrival. How do you do? My name is Werner, Werner Johnson. I'm sorry I wasn't here to greet you, but I'm afraid I have my hands full with the recital tonight. I expect the others have told you about it. No, 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 they haven't, actually. No. Well, I do hope you come along. It's not compulsory, but we do like a good attendance. Right. Well, I'll leave the others to put you in the picture, explain the ways of the camp. I'm sure you'll settle in very shortly, as they have. Yeah? I'll see you later. Ah, oh, Dominica, I wonder if you could do my hair before this evening. Certainly, Bernie, whenever suits you. Yeah? What do you remember of the series writers, Jill Hyam and Anne Valerie? Any any tales or did you get to talk to them about Blanche or? Yes, lots, both of them. Um, Anne Valerie kind of wore her heart on her sleeve, I would say. She was you could always you, you didn't need to look on the front page to see who had written which episode because Anne's was so full of uh, description Um Screaming, sweating, anxious, terrified, uh, hysterical, what, you know, whatever. She, she made it very clear how she wanted you to depict uh, what she'd written. Um, Jill, on the other hand, was very subtle. She might occasionally put a little prompt in there as to how she thought this should be played, but had a sort of greater trust, I think, of the actor's layer in whatever she delivered. If you just took out the dialogue, I think it would be very difficult to say. Yeah. You know, if you took away all the stage, yeah. just took out the dialogue, you, it would be very difficult to say who'd written what because they were at one with, with um, they'd, they'd really, really worked together in a, in a simpatico ways to where each character was, uh, had been and where she was going. Um, and... I thought I knew everything about Anne and then discovered that she'd uh, lost a toddler mm. uh, uh, very early on in her life and was surprised that I'd never received that information while we were doing Tenko when the rest of us were bearing our souls about yeah. everything, yes. <laughs> everywhere. Um, um and Jill, who on the surface appeared far more reserved and quiet and uh, contained, uh, I knew much more about. Mm. It's interesting, that is interesting, isn't it? I'd only really, I'd only really, it's only really occurring to me now. And her son, Ben, decided to become vegetarian and she knew I was veggie. So she, you know, made a big effort to find out about recipes and we went to each other's homes for dinner and that kind of thing so we we rather bonded over over that um and and later i've still got one of jill's uh i've got two scripts of jill's here actually that at some point i'm going to get round to developing one she was working on at the point of her death and uh Another a stage play that I was in of hers called We'll Always Have Paris, oh, yes. which 
I think will make the most fantastic film. Mm. Um, so I'm, um, yeah, looking looking at turning that. Oh, into that would film. be wonderful. Yeah. yeah, yeah, amazing lady. Yeah. So, um, one more Tenko like scene memory I want to take you back to, which is when, again, one of the most memorable moments in the series, and it's when Rose is dying, and Blanche finally comes to visit her, and she offers to cut her hair. How was that to play? On a personal level, I was rather jealous of her wig that she ended up with because I didn't think Blanche was served terribly well by the wig she got when she decided to cut her yeah. hair. But there's something about there's something about a woman's hair that is so, especially in the Western world, so uh, vital to her identity. Uh, in Little Women, when Joe has her hair cut off. It's a it's a it's an iconic moment out of those Little Women books. I don't know if you've yeah, ever there read are, them. yeah I've seen it I've seen it yeah yeah but that's a kind of very dynamic moment and there's a bit of me that goes not well it will grow again when I read them you know I was a bit kind of over it when I read the series but it's still but it still became but when or when a, nowadays if a friend is going through chemo and the hair falls out you it, that's that's the that's the subject that one talks about rather than the chemo itself. The fact that the hair is going to be lost becomes a major issue. So cutting off... And, and Rose, who was so um, attached to how she looked, to make that decision and to do that and for that to be the kindest thing that Blanche could do was just a interesting and subtle way to cement their friendship. By some ironic miracle, I did survive this place and get lugged back to England. What would happen to me? I'd be dumped in some nursing home to vegetate. Well, that is hardly an incentive. No, no it needn't be like that, Rose. You've got a bit of money stashed away, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah, and that rich old aunt in Bath, she'd cough up, wouldn't she? She did. Money can't buy the things I want. Well, I, I was thinking maybe we could buy a place together. Well, we get on all right, don't we? Little cottage in the country, perhaps. We could find someone to look after you. I'd get a job local. It's about time I changed my evil ways. You could take up writing and painting and that. And at weekends when I wasn't working, I, I could... What? Tuck a rug round my legs and wheel me down the leafy lanes. Sir. Will you cut my hair? It wasn't one of my questions, but it's just something that uh, that I thought was fascinating when I was researching the book back in the day was that I came across lots of lesbian fan fiction around Blanche and Rose. <laughs> oh, did yes. you? Yes, and I just wondered I whether just you knew that. <laughs> no, somebody on um, Twitter has just gone, is there any fan fiction around Tinker? Yes, well, there very definitely is, particularly around you and oh. Rose. <laughs> <laughs> How interesting. Yeah. Maybe I should look it up. Yeah. 
But, um, I, don't, I don't know how racy it is, but I think there's a lot of like wish fulfillment of them getting out of the camp somehow, despite the fact they obviously don't survive them. But it's interesting how they've been ca- taken on, you know, fully. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I just wondered whether you knew that. Yeah. Um, well, it's just women surviving in the or or surviving with dignity or not surviving with dignity in the face of huge adversity, and I'm sure a lot of. Um, lesbians can identify with that yeah 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 so how was it you've already kind of touched on this but how difficult was it to say goodbye to Blanche in those circumstances of knowing there was all this opportunity and yeah really really hard really hard especially with the relationship I knew they were going to develop with uh, Veronica with, with Ronnie Roberts uh who I think is probably one of the best actors I've ever worked with ever anywhere I think she's just extraordinary she's an extraordinary human being as well as an actor she just can't do anything if it isn't truthful everything she does touches the truth so yeah it was hard it was really hard I I, I don't know I don't know what else to say about that, but I, you know, I shed a tear or two. Yeah. For sure. I mean, could you watch the third series? I imagine not. You yeah, did. I did. Of you did watch did. it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I only the one. I've only watched it once. You know, as it came out, so a long, long time ago. But yes, I have. And you know, Ma- Maggie, who took over. Yes, yeah, she did a fantastic job. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, and I'm glad it went to somebody absolutely lovely. Imagine if it'd gone to somebody I didn't. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it would be difficult. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so it seemed like you were destined to never go to the Far East because you'd also missed out on the um, the trip to Malaysia where they had the big, oh, the, the big journey episode. Oh, I, <laughs> so, I did, however, get there. I got there later with um, a Ray Cooney farce and a, an Alan Akebourne comedy. Um, I went to Singapore and uh, Kuala Lumpur. So I, I've... I've finally got there but many many years later yeah. it was the beginning of this yeah. century yeah on, on a on a very much smaller scale i had a similar situation in which i was president of a european library association and i resigned from my job as a business librarian at cambridge the year that they were going to singapore and my friends on the association rang me from raffles to say you should be here andy <laughs> With the, which is the gala dinner night and it, they knew about Tenko and everything as well, so it's kind of like, oh. So not fair. Not fair. I have been there since. So, um, so just a general question to, to end off with. Why do you think Tenko was so successful? It was unique and uh, broke a media convention, I think. Uh, and you know 52 percent of the population is female identifies as female so you know that the audience is there it's just that the business had been run by men who didn't really take that into consideration and there we were and the reason it hasn't did you know this there was an article in the telegraph about i don't know not too long ago three four years ago saying that tenko hadn't been repeated on terrestrial because the Japanese government got in touch with the British government. I did know there was communications, yes, but I didn't... There was some political... Right. 
yeah, some political pressure for us for it not to be. I mean, at its height, I think we were at sixteen and a half yeah. million viewers. Yeah. It's like, can you can you think of any other show with those figures that isn't repeated at some point? So the sexism still absolutely still rears its ugly head. And how many women ensemble dramas are there? You know, since yeah, there's some yeah. There's yeah. more than back then, but still nowhere near enough. No, but there there are more women taking the taking the reins now. Yes, in the series. Yeah, Doctor yeah. Who, fantastic. Name, but yeah, one. yeah. So, yeah, finally. finally. I know. Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> it took so long. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, wonderful. So, um, I wondered if we could just finish by if you could just. Tell me, um, the listeners, about any projects that you'd like to flag up that you're involved with at the moment or are coming out, anything you'd like to promote? Oh, well, I'm currently directing uh, for Big Finish War Doctors. Uh, I've run a little uh, writing festival with my friend Kat Rogers, uh, which is going on at the Lion and Unicorn in North London at the beginning of March, 10 short plays. Okay. Uh, which we ran a competition, took out the best 10 for that. Um, I'm writing a series with Helen Goldwyn, uh, a sitcom. Oh, wow. So really crossing my fingers on that one. So uh, it's all down the the directing, writing route at the moment, but um, acting still remains the first love. But I have been surprisingly and rather wonderfully hugely busy through this lockdown because of this um, dear listener we are on zoom (laughs) so Andy can see I've got this sort of home studio set up now which uh, I I don't think too many women in their 60s have um, have got their head around all the technology Uh, that you need to get your head around so So uh, the competition is narrowed a bit. <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm getting a bit more audio work than I would normally get if we were travelling into a studio. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there's another series that, that I'm going to be in, which I don't think I'm allowed to announce yet, but um, Barnaby Edwards is uh, directing it. So that's all I can say about that one. But that's a, that's a really exciting project, and I'm sure that there'll be a huge announcement about that. Yeah, yeah. So how is it to, just back to Tenko finally, just how is it to still be talking about, I know you, you've talked about Leela all the time, I'm sure, but to talk about Blanche as well after all these years, is that, how is that? Well, I often get asked, what, what was your favourite part ever? And uh, I get asked this at Doctor Who conventions and I think they're rather disappointed when I say it has to be Blanche in Tenko because it was not only, you know, uh, as I said, breaking the media tradition, but it also formed, and I don't say this lightly, a second family for me uh, with those women and was the opportunity of a lifetime to play a you know, gutsy, extraordinary, rather wonderful woman who was an amalgamation of a load of women who had actually existed and lived and suffered and, uh, and done in their honour. Mm. Louise, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. What a joy to see you again. And you. Take care. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of love.
course, there's a bumper package from BBC One. There's a Tenko reunion. It's five years after the end of the war, and the Tenko inmates are back in Singapore. Oh, it's good to see you. Oh, Stephen! Monica! <laughs> this Christmas... This Christmas, an A to Z of UK TV drama celebrates by exploring Tenko Reunion 35 years to the day since its first broadcast in 1985. As well as exploring this festive special, there's another exclusive Tenko interview, this time with the creator of Tenko herself, Lavinia Warner. That's all coming your way in two weeks' time on Boxing Day morning. Merry Christmas!